Church, good to see you all here this morning. Please open your Bibles to Psalm chapter 1. We're going to be beginning a new sermon series in our time together this morning, having wrapped up 1 Corinthians. We're now going to be spending our summer in the Psalms. If you are unfamiliar, Psalms is about in the middle of your Bible, and we're going to be starting in the first chapter, the first Psalm in our time together this morning. When you come to a fork in the road, take it. You've probably heard these words before. This well-known quote is attributed to Yogi Berra, the famous Yankees catcher, the eight-time or 18-time All-American, the, or All-Star, excuse me, the 10-time World Series champion and the Hall of Famer. He's largely regarded as one of the greatest catchers to ever play the game of baseball. And yet, despite his incredible baseball prowess, he's arguably more famously known for his yogi-isms, his pithy one-liners that say something in a unique way, things like, it ain't over till it's over. It's deja vu all over again. Or as we've already said, when you come to a fork in the road, take it. Now, the ironic part is, though most people know this quote, and though it's been used by inspirational speakers for determination and decisiveness consistently, few people actually know the reason that Yogi Berra first said it. He was actually giving directions to his New Jersey home. His home was situated on some sort of a round drive in such a way that you had to come to a fork in the road, and it didn't matter if you turned left or turned right, at some point you would reach the destination of his house either way. Hence him being able to say, take the fork. As a result, it's a yogi-ism. It's funny because it's ironic and also because it's rare. See, most of us know this intuitively. Rarely is the choice we make at a fork in the road irrelevant. In fact, more often than not, picking the wrong path gets us way off track. Though the trajectories start at the same point, The farther you continue down those alternative paths, the farther and farther and farther apart the destinations get. And this is precisely what Psalm 1 is about this morning. Psalm 1 introduces the theology of the whole book of Psalms and presents a fork in the road. It presents two hypothetical men, two directions, two paths, two ways to live, and ultimately two very different destinations that those lives result in. And through warnings and encouragements, it pleads for us all to choose the blessed path of following God rather than the wicked path of rebelling against Him. It presents us with a fork in the road and says, what will you choose today? Let's read Psalm chapter 1 together and see if you can't pick up on what I'm talking about. Psalm 1, verses 1 through 6. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Let's pray. Father, we praise you for this morning, for the chance to gather together to sing your praises. 
to exalt Christ, to share communion, to both remember what Christ did for us and to anticipate his return together. Father, we pray that as we study the Psalms together, that you would encourage us, that you would challenge us. Father, that the Psalms would speak to both our mind and our heart in the way that they do so well. We pray that your spirit would be active, that you would guide my words, that you would guide our ears in our time together this morning. We dedicate this time to your glory in your name. Amen. And at this point, some of you are probably thinking, well, that's great, Brad, but what does that have to do with the video you showed at the beginning of the series, right? What does that have to do with the Messiah? As you saw in the video, this series will be walking through the so-called messianic psalms in the book of Psalms. They are so named because they contain prophecies about Christ, they contain allusions to his life, and they contain specific passages that he applied to himself. So over the course of the summer, we'll be walking through Christ's life from the perspective of the Psalms in the Old Testament and emphasizing worship of Christ in all circumstances and all seasons of our lives. Which brings me back to Psalm chapter 1. Psalm 1 functions as an introduction to the book of Psalms. As a wisdom psalm, it, choose, or it calls us to choose a path for our life, to choose to listen and follow the words of the rest of the book of Psalms, or to walk the easy path and reject the words we read. And as only poetry can do, it appeals to both our minds and our hearts and our affections. It uses metaphor and imagery and songs to call out to us to heed the words that it shares. This morning we come to the first image in the book of Psalms, this fork in the road in Psalm chapter 1. And here we see three different men's responses to this call. First we see the blessed man. Look at verses 1 through 3. The blessed man. Blessed is the man. Now it's an interesting start. Blessed is the man. Now it's worth noting that this man thing doesn't mean he's just speaking to men. Blessed is the one would be appropriate. Blessed is the one. But we got to understand what blessed means. Health and wealth preachers would have you believe all sorts of things about the blessings of God. What do we mean by blessed here? This term is used 26 different times in the book of Psalms. It literally means happy or fortunate, blessed, joyful is the term. It's also plural. It means blessing upon blessing, happiness upon happiness, fortunateness upon fortunateness. I would define blessed here as experiencing the life and joy of living continually in the presence of God. Experiencing the life and joy that comes from being continually in the presence of God. As a point of interest, it's actually the same term that's used in 1 Kings chapter 10, verses 8 and 9. Flip to the left in your Bibles real briefly if you want to. 1 Kings chapter 10. It's a fascinating text to read. If you're unfamiliar, 1 Kings is a time when Solomon was the king of Israel. Solomon had inherited the kingdom from his father, David, and he had begun to rule. And God had come to him and said, ask anything you want for me and I'll give it to you. Solomon asks for wisdom. And as a result, he's the wisest man to ever live. He writes most of the book of Proverbs. And here in chapter 10, he is visited by a foreign dignitary, the queen of Sheba. She comes and she sees everything that's going on in his kingdom. And she asks all the questions she can think to ask and marvels at Solomon's wisdom and response. And this is her assessment of Solomon's kingdom. Look at verse 9. 1 Kings chapter 10, verse 9, she says, or verse 8, excuse me, happy are your men, happy are your servants who continually stand before you and hear your wisdom. Blessed be the Lord your God who has delighted in you and set, on you, the th or set you on the throne of Israel. 
That term, happy are your men, happy are your servants, is the same term that gets translated blessed here in Proverbs or in Psalms chapter 1. It's the idea of the joy that comes from living a life consistent with God's will and God's wisdom. So, blessed is the man. Now, from there, we move into the psalm and we start addressing how this man is functioning, how he lives his life. First, we note his posture in verse 1, the blessed man's posture. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the ski of scoffers. Did you notice the posture language? Walking, standing, sitting. He draws a metaphor here, the psalmist does, to indicate what he's talking about. And it's worth noting here that he doesn't note so much what the blessed man does as what he doesn't do. Did you see that? Three things the blessed man does not do. He does not walk in the counsel of the wicked. He does not stand in the way of sinners. And he does not sit in the seat of scoffers. And you don't know there's kind of a downward spiral to this. There's kind of a downward trajectory of these three things, though he's speaking to the same reality. Essentially, what he's talking about is this man doesn't accept the world's advice. He does not walk in the counsel of the wicked. He does not listen to what the world values and what the world cares about. The man who seeks to be blessed by God, the man who seeks to live his life in accordance with God, does not accept the world's advice does not see the things that the world counts as valuable as valuable. He inherits a different impression of the world. He lives by a different set of values. And as a result then, he also doesn't stand in the sinner's path. Note here, this terminology, he does not stand in the way of the sinners. Now this gets a little bit confusing for us in English because we read he doesn't stand in the way of sinners and we think stand in the way as far as objecting. Right, this sort of confrontational idea, but that's not what he's saying here. What he's saying, he doesn't stand in the shoes. He doesn't walk in the same way. He doesn't walk in the same path as sinners. What he's saying is, first, he doesn't accept the world's advice, but in addition to that, he doesn't approve of the world's actions. He doesn't live his life the way the world lives their lives. Because he doesn't seek their advice, he doesn't live out that reality. He doesn't walk in the counsel of the wicked, he doesn't stand in the sinner's path. And then lastly, and most dangerously, he does not sit in the seat of scoffers. This is the likely result of this sort of idea. When we accept the world's advice, when we begin to live the world in the way the world does, we find ourselves scoffing at the things of the Bible. I've seen this time and time again when I was working in youth ministry. You'd have a freshman come in and they'd be excited about the Word of God, about living in obedience to God, and as a sophomore, they would start accumulating friends that weren't walking with the Lord. And they would start to have their heart drawn off, and by their junior year, they were kind of indifferent, and by their senior year, they were scoffing at the things of the Word. They were scoffing at Christ. They were scoffing at the Bible. They were scoffing the same way the world does. It says, the blessed man does not do these things. He doesn't accept the world's advice. He doesn't approve of the world's actions, and he doesn't adopt the world's attitudes. Now, notice the emphasis here is on action, not simply head knowledge. There's a difference between knowing the right thing to do and doing that right thing. Knowing the right thing is knowledge. Doing the right thing is wisdom. This is a wisdom psalm. The emphasis is on action. He doesn't do the things that would result in a negative path for his life. He is actively postured, he is actively prepared to reject evil in all its forms. So he doesn't respond to the advice of the world, he doesn't respond in the way the world would, he does not have the attitudes of the world, that is his posture. But in addition to that, 
We see his pleasure. What does he delight in? What does he enjoy if it's not the things of the world? Look at verse 2. But his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law he meditates day and night. Do you notice his pleasure? Rather than desiring the things of the world, rather than listening to the words of the world, his delight is in the law of the Lord. The object of his delight is the word of God. Why is the word of God the object of his delight? Because he loves the God of the word. He wants to know the God who wrote this book. And so he studies this book, and he reads this book, and he meditates on this book. Not in worship of the book, but in worship of the one who wrote the book. In much the same way that if my wife and I were apart from each other for a long time, and we were writing each other letters, as, or maybe it's emails, as pen pals. I know people don't really write letters anymore. If I were to send my wife a letter and she hasn't seen me for a long time, she would read that letter probably over and over and over again. Why? Because she wants to know me. It says, the blessed man's posture is to love the law of the Lord, to love the word of God. And because his affection is so high for the word of God and the God of the word, his action is continual meditation. On his law, he meditates day and night. Now, this meditation idea isn't so much the idea that we can never get up from the desk and stop reading the word of God. It's more that we have so saturated our life with the word of God that it is top of mind. Right? That's the marketing term, right? Top of mind. It's always on the tip of our tongue. It's always the first thing we're thinking about. When we wake up in the morning, it occurs to us. When we go down at bed and we're having trouble sleeping, it comes back to us. Because we've so sought to live our lives in accordance with the Word. The object of the Word is the Word of God. The action of His delight is continual meditation. And notice the appeal here is emotional, not simply intellectual. Psalms appeals to the emotions of who we are more than any other book in the Bible. It seeks to direct our affections to where they should be on God Himself. It says, The blessed man... His posture is to actively reject evil, and his pleasure is in God's word because his passion is God himself. I love the way John Piper puts this in a book. He's quoted in a book known as Habits of Grace on the Spiritual Disciplines. He puts it this way. He's talking about reading the word of God. He says, a godly life is lived out of an astonished heart. A heart that is astonished at grace. We go to the Bible to be astonished, to be amazed at God and Christ and the cross and the grace and the gospel. As we are freshly captivated by the grandeur of God and his gospel, we become what we behold. We start to desire and to look like God. Not in some strange way, but in Christ-like character. We start to desire the same things Christ desired. We start to seek the same things Christ sought. We start to walk the same way Christ walked. Are you living your life out of an astonishment of the grace of God and seeking to see that in his word every day? The blessed man's pleasure is in God's word because his passion is to know God himself. And then finally, the psalmist introduces an illustration, a way of trying to communicate 
what this blessed man looks like, and we see his position in verse 3. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. His position is like a tree, a tree intentionally planted by streams of water. And we understand this idea. If we plant a tree out in the desert, it's not going to be there for very long, is it? It's going to dry up, it's going to wither up, and it's going to blow away. But if we plant a tree by a continual source of water, that tree will be firm regardless of what the situation of life is. Winds can come, and hail can come, and storms can come, and nothing can budge that tree because it's been intentionally planted by water. He said, this blessed man, because his delight is in the law of the Lord, it's like he's been intentionally planted by water, this source of strength and this source of security when times get difficult. And because he has been intentionally planted, he is also faithfully producing. Did you see that? It yields its fruit in season. Its leaf does not wither. It doesn't mean it doesn't go through hard times. It doesn't mean that things aren't difficult. But because it's planted by the streams of water, it yields fruit in season. Its leaf doesn't wither away because it's been rooted and grounded in the Word of God. And then this last phrase, really interesting here at the end of verse 3, in all he does, he prospers. So we see this tree is intentionally planted, it is faithfully producing, it is also completely prosperous. Now hold on a second, because I know what you're thinking, right? The health and wealth gospel preachers out there would have you read a verse like this and say, this means God wants you to be rich. That's not what this means, just for the record. Don't assume wealth or success is what he's going for here. What is a prosperous plant? It's yielding its fruit in season. It's fruitful. It's producing. It's faithful. Prosperous here is the idea of having God's blessing in your life. Not necessarily material blessing, not necessarily success in all you do, but faithfulness and blessing in the things that really matter in this life. Think of Matthew chapter 5 and Christ's Beatitudes in the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are the merciful. He doesn't ever say, blessed are the wealthy. God, Jesus didn't hate money, just for the record. But that's not what he's talking about here. In fact, it's reminiscent of Joshua 1.8, and I can't help but think that the psalmist may have been meditating on Joshua 1.8 when he wrote these words. Joshua 1.8 says, the book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. And what God meant when he said that to Joshua is then you will do what God has called you to do. You will be faithful. You will be fruitful. You will be grounded. This blessed man's wise position his ongoing pleasure yields fruit and strength and faithfulness in his life. The blessed man lives, or blessed man's life loathes evil. It lives or loves the word and it lives accordingly. Let me say that again. The blessed man's life loathes evil, loves the word, and lives accordingly. In that respect, it's kind of the difference between a crash diet and an actual life change, right? We've all done these crash diet things, right? I'm going to lose 20 pounds by the time I have to be in that wedding, right? And maybe we're successful. We say, I'm not going to eat anything for the next two weeks. And we drop 10 pounds, we drop 20 pounds. 
But because we haven't actually changed what we're, uh, what we're affectionate of, we actually still love candy, and we actually still love soda, and we actually still love ice cream, we drop the weight, but then our lifestyle brings us right back to the same place we were, right? Because nothing has changed about our affections. As opposed to a lifestyle change that says, I'm going to change what my heart longs for. I'm going to change the affections and my tastes. Is anybody out there a CrossFitter? Okay, good. I can say this then. <laughs> CrossFitters are crazy, right? Okay, now hear me. Don't, 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 don't check out on me yet, but CrossFitters have embraced a whole new lifestyle. Everything they post on social media is about CrossFit. Every time they eat, it's about CrossFit. Every time they work out, it's about CrossFit. Everything is about CrossFit, right? It's a whole new lifestyle, but to their credit, it works because they have changed their affections, and so they change the trajectory of their life. It's not a crash diet. It's saying, I'm going to change what I desire in life in order to change where my life is headed. That's exactly what the blessed man has done here. He said, my delight will be for the law of the Lord. My posture will be a rejection of evil, and my position will be planted firmly in God. Our goal ought to be this posture, this pleasure, and this position as well. So do a little bit of assessment in your own heart. What is the posture of your life? How do you respond to evil? How do you respond to sin? Do you hate sin in your own heart, in your own life, the same way that God does? Till sin be bitter, Christ will not be sweet. What is the posture of your life? Psalm 58 and many of the Psalms take a very bleak outlook on sin and use some language that makes us a little bit uncomfortable. But it's meant to guide and direct the posture of our life and the affections of our heart. What is your posture toward evil and sin? What is the pleasure of your life? What gets you up in the morning? What gets you out of bed and gets you going? Do you hunger and thirst for more of God? Psalm 84 speaks in these sort of terms. Let me just read a couple of passages from Psalm 84. You can turn there if you want to in your Bibles or you can just listen. Psalm 84 expresses the blessed man's passion, his desire. How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts. My soul longs, yes, faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and flesh sing for joy to the living God. For a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be the doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of the wickedness. For the Lord is a sun and a shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. O Lord of hosts, blessed is the one who trusts in you. So Psalm seeks to direct our affections and our focus to God and a love for his word because we want to know more about him. What is the pleasure of your life? What is the position of your life? Where do you go when times are hard, when things are difficult? Do you run out and buy something? Do you go and eat something? Do you go and post something and see who likes it? Where do you go when times are hard? The blessed man's posture is to rest in Christ when times are hard. Psalm 18 expresses this sort of desire of seeing God as his refuge and fortress. What is the 
posture? What is the position of your life? Where do you go when times are hard? His point here, as he describes this blessed man, is that our passion will direct our path. What we are passionate about will direct the path that our feet take. Jesus, probably the consummate wisdom teacher, speaking in the same sort of terms as Psalm 1 here in Matthew 24, or Matthew 7, says it this way. Everyone who does, or who hears the words of mine and does them, will be like a wise man who built his house on a rock. And the rain fell, and the winds, or the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. The blessed man's life is founded on the rock, is yours, is yours. Because unfortunately, this path is narrow and it's rarely walked in this life by people. Far more common is the opposite path, the path of the wicked man. We see that in verse 4 through 6. Here the psalmist begins with a contrasting illustration. He speaks of the transiency and the passing of the wicked. Look at verse 4. The wicked are not so but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Wow. You know what chaff is? Chaff is the dry, crumbly part on the outside of a seed of grain or wheat. It's this fall when the combines go out and start cutting down corn. They put the corn in the combine, everything that blows out the back end of the combine, that's the chaff. He says the wicked are like the chaff. Note the description, how it works backward of the healthy tree in verse 3. Everything that is true of the first man is not true of the second man here. He is not prosperous. He is not producing. He is not planted. See that here in verse 4. The wicked are not so. And the way you can actually render this in Hebrew is, not so the wicked, not so. Just to make his point clear, everything that's true of the first man is oppositely not true of the second man. He's not prosperous. He is not blessed because his delight is in the law of the Lord. He is not fruitful. He is not planted. He is not firm. He is not producing. His life is like chaff. It's dry. It's withered. It's useless. Ultimately, it will be blown away. It's not planted. It's not rooted and grounded in God's word. They are like chaff that the wind drives away. In short, he is opposite of everything of the blessed man. His life is transitory. His life is dry. His life is fruitless. We should take stock of these words. All of our lives are a mixed bag. There's days when we seem to be walking well, and there's days when we don't seem to be walking well. And wisdom literature speaks in these sort of absolute terms, speaking to the desires of our heart and what is the ultimate result of that style of living. Take stock of the way he describes this. Because of this reality, we also see his punishment. In addition to his passing, we see his punishment. Look at verse 5. Therefore, in light of the passion he has chosen to pursue, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor the sinners in the congregation of the righteous. Because the result of this style of life is punishment. He notes two aspects of this punishment. First, judgment, and then separation. The wicked will not stand in the judgment. This idea of not standing is not being able to endure, not being able to hold up to the scrutiny and the weight of God's judgment on their lives. 
And as a result, they will be separated from the congregation of the righteous. They will be separated from God's people. This is the sort of language that we run into again and again in the book of Psalms, and it makes us a little bit squeamish. It speaks of God's wrath and God's judgment, how God will ultimately judge the wicked. He will judge the one who has chosen to reject him and reject his Savior and walk away from him. To say, I'm going to do things my own way. I'm going to take my own path. Can't help but think of, <laughs> I did it my way, right? It's a famous word, that mantra for American idealism. I did it my way. This is the result of I did it my way. This is the punishment that we see for this sort of rebellious, wicked life. In fact, so complete is God's judgment here that even the way of living will eventually perish of the wicked man. Here we see the end of his life, the end of his path. Look at verse 6. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Did you notice the shift? From the emphasis being on the individual to the emphasis even being on the way. The Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. He contrasts these two separate paths. He contrasts God's response to each of them. First, the righteous way is said to be known by God. The Lord knows the way of the righteous. Now here, known indicates an affection, a care, an intimacy, not just an intellectual knowledge. It's not that just God is like, oh yeah, I see him out there. It's that God cares for, he's involved with, he's caring about the way of the righteous versus the way of the wicked. The way of the wicked will perish. One day, the righteous way will be the only way. Paul writes of this in Philippians 2, verses 9 through 11, when he says, one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is the Lord. There will not be another option. There will be one path. And everyone will see Christ for who he is and everyone will know him at that moment. And this way of the wicked will be gone forever. The wicked life and the wicked path are temporary and will ultimately be judged by God. It's kind of like the imagery I think of when I think of the transitory nature of the wicked man and the wicked path is the idea of scooping snow in a blizzard. Have you ever tried that? Right? It seems like it's done snowing, so you're like, I can go out and I can scoop my walk. So you go out to your walk and you start scooping, you get the path and all of a sudden the wind kicks up right? And you're, you're plowing ahead. You're not paying any attention to what's behind you, so you're just scooping away, right? And you turn around and what? You can't even tell where you've plowed. It's blown away, literally, and you can't even tell where you've scooped. That's what the way of the wicked is like. They're out there investing their lives. They're out there spending their moment by moment doing something, but ultimately the path won't even be visible when all is said and done. The wicked man functions like a warning to us. Does this life bear any resemblance to yours? Ask yourself, what am I investing my life in? Are the things that I spend my time and my talents and my treasures on of eternal significance? Or when all is said and done, will they show themselves to be vapor, to be nothing? The things that I spend my life on, the things that drive the affections of my heart and my time, 
Will they be of eternal significance or will they show themselves to be transitory? To be like chaff that the wind blows away. It's also a warning to those that would reject God. That would walk away from God and say, God, I'm going to do my own thing. I'm going to walk my own way. I'm going to rebel against your authority and do my own thing. The wicked man here serves as a warning and begs us to ask, what am I trusting for my eternity? Am I resting solely in the gospel of Jesus Christ, in the work he's done for me? Or am I trying to just gut it out and do my own thing and get my way to heaven on my own works? The wicked man serves as an example and a warning for each of us. Because once again, our passion directs our path. What matters most to us makes the path of our life extremely clear. In Matthew 7, Jesus goes on to describe this path. In Matthew 7, verses 26 and 27, it says, And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. Is your life built on the foundation of sand? Is it this path of the wicked man? Rejecting God, doing things in your own power, saying, I don't need you, Lord. If so, the wicked man stands as a warning to you. Now, I know at this point in the message, there's some of you, especially those note takers out there that have all the bullet points written down, and they're going, hold on a second, Brad. That was verse 6. You said there were three men. We've only talked about two men. I know. Because there's a third individual that appears throughout the book of Psalms. There's an individual that shows up repeatedly throughout the book of Psalms, one who perfectly walks the blessed path and rejects the wicked path, one who comes to rescue his people from their enemies, but even more than that, from their sin, one who is both a warrior king and a servant shepherd, one who is right, or his righteousness surpasses even that of his father David, who wrote many of the Psalms. One who is the very Son of God. In the book of Psalms, he is referred to as the anointed man. The anointed one. Dave Drebo is going to talk more about this next week in Psalm 2, but let me give you a bit of a primer of this idea. We get a little bit weirded out because we don't really understand this word anointed. We don't use it much in our common language. But anointing would have been a very familiar thing to the original audience. Priests would have been anointed, kings would have been anointed, even once a prophet in the Old Testament is anointed. And what they would do is they would kneel down and they would have oil poured on their head. We go, that sounds kind of weird, right? Well, bear with me. It was an indication of them being consecrated for a particular role, set apart for it, empowered by God for the task, endorsed by God in the role. And so we see kings and we see prophets, and we even see priests anointed by God for a specific task, being these mediators between God and men, but ultimately every single one of them fails to live up to the expectation of the Psalms. David, as the greatest king that ever lived in Israel's history, fails miserably. The prophets again and again and again fail. The priests can't live up to the expectation of God, and Psalms begs for one who has been anointed by God and will actually do what God has called him to do. 
And this is a role claimed by Christ in Luke chapter 4. In Luke chapter 4, Jesus goes home to Nazareth. He goes back to his hometown of Nazareth, and just as happenstance would have it, he ends up in the, ta- the temple, or not the temple, in the, uh, in the uh, and why is the word escaping me right now? The place where they worship. Thank you. See, this is what happened to me last week too, right? In the synagogue, on the Sabbath, and just as fortune would have it, he stands up to read, right? And they hand him what scroll? Isaiah. Luke 4, verses 17 through 19. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim the good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Christ claims this role of the anointed one that the Psalms and Isaiah had anticipated. He says, I am the one that has come to fulfill the purposes of God. And as a result, it's the title that Andrew declares when he meets Jesus to his brother Peter in John 1.41. He says, I have found the Messiah. The Messiah is a derivative of this anointed one language. He says, I found him. I found the one who we've been anticipating for years. It's the title given to Jesus by the Samaritan woman in John chapter 4, verse 27 or 25, when he says, or when she says, I know there's a Messiah coming. I know there's an anointed one coming because the Old Testament told us about it. Christ, the Messiah, in many ways is the destination of the Psalms. The destination that the Psalms long for. He is the passion of the blessed man. His affection and his object of worship. He is the salvation of the wicked man here in these verses. In the lament Psalms, he is our place of comfort. In the ascent Psalms, he is the king of Zion. In the imprecatory Psalms, he is the righteous judge. In the penitent Psalms, he is the source of our grace. And in the praise Psalms, he is the object of our worship. He is our Lord. He is our Savior. He is the Messiah, the Lord's anointed one. And throughout the book of Psalms, we will spend time worshiping the Lord's anointed one. Worshiping the Messiah who came to fulfill the promises of this book. And Psalm 1 introduces that theme. It presents us with a fork in the road. Coming to it, we see these three different men, these three different options. The blessed man serves as an example to us, saying, will you walk in this way, posturing yourself to reject evil, passionate about the word of God, and positioned to receive from God his blessing? Will you walk as the wicked man, who serves as a warning, Rejecting God's authority, rebelling against God's design, and saying, I can do it on my own. Or will you look to the anointed man who serves as our Savior and Lord? The one who perfectly fulfilled the requirements of the law and was the destination and purpose of this book of Psalms. And that's exactly why Christ, drawing on this idea, can wrap up his well-known Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 7 with these words. In Matthew chapter 7, Jesus finishes his discussion basically on the Sermon on the Mount in verses 13 and 14. He's saying this, Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. 
and those who find it are few. I am the way, the true, and, or the truth, and the life. I am the gate. I am the destination of this path. Which path, which gate, which life will you choose? Let's pray. Father, this is too much for us. The reality that you put before us these options. And I know we're all convicted of the fact that we don't walk continually on the blessed path. We don't hunger for your word the way we should. We don't desire to reject evil the way we should. We don't position ourselves to receive the blessing of your grace like we should. Father, we praise you for the fact that Christ did that for us. That he lived a perfect life on our behalf. We can turn to him in trust and faith. We can look to to the anointed one, the Messiah, who came to save us from our sin. Pray that for all of us, as we feel the weight and conviction of this text, that we would repent and turn to Christ again and again and again. Lord, give us the strength and the ability to walk in faithfulness to you, to reject evil, to long to know you more, to respond the way the blessed man does here in this text. Lord, give us the ability to do that this week in our lives. Encourage us to that task. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.